Okay, our Bibles, uh, open them up to Luke chapter 23. We're going to read from verse 44. So Luke chapter 23, verse 44. If you don't have Bible, it's on the screen uh, for you to see as well as we continue looking at the cost of We're going to read this passage in one Luke chapter 23, verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, defeating their presence. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Would you pray with me as we Lord God, we want to thank you for the glory of the cross. We want to thank you this morning for all Christ paid for us. Lord, we acknowledge this morning that often we are not amazed by the cross. We're overly familiar with it. And so we ask this morning as we continue to study all Christ achieved for us, by the power of the Holy Spirit, open our hearts, open our minds, that we can freshly experience the wonder of all His love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We begin this morning by reading a story uh, recently from the Washington Post by Mark Berman, entitled, I forgive you. Relatives of Charleston Church shooting victims address Dylan Roof. And Mark Berman writes the following. The relatives of people slain inside the, inside the historic African American church of Charleston, South Carolina, earlier this week, were able to speak directly to the accused gunman Friday at his first appearance. One by one, those who chose to speak at a bond hearing did not turn to anger. Instead, while he remained impassive, they offered him forgiveness and said they were praying for his soul, even as they described the pain of their losses. I forgive you, Nadine Collier, the daughter of 70-year-old Ethel Lance, said at the hearing, her voice breaking with emotion. You took something very precious from me. I will never talk to her again. I will never, ever hold her again. But I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. 
The Bon hearing in North Charleston was the first public appearance of Dylan Roof, the 21-year-old arrested in connection with the shootings, since police booked him into a Charleston County detention centre and said he was charged with nine counts of murder. Chief Magistrate James B. Gosselin Jr. began the hearing by saying that there was pain on both sides, the victims of the shooting inside Emanuel AME Church, as well as the relatives of Roof who were reeling from what happened. He then recited the names of the people killed inside the church and each time asked if any relatives or representatives of the slain wanted to make a statement in the courtroom. Felicia Sanders spoke about her son, Taiwanza Sanders, who was killed. We welcomed you Wednesday night in our Bible study with welcome arms, said Felicia Sanders, her voice trembled. Taiwanza Sanders was my son, but Taiwanza Sanders was my hero. Taiwanza was my hero. May God have mercy on you. Some people chose not to speak. Others, like a relative of Myra Thompson, echoed the forgiving sentiment, calling on Ruth to repent. I acknowledge that I am very angry, said the sister of Depayne, Middleton Doctor. But one thing Depayne always enjoined in our family is she taught me that we are the family that loved Bill. We have no room for hating. So we have to forgive. I pray God on your side. It's a powerful account. The actions of the congregation of the Manual Church towards this man, Dylan Roof, displayed an incredible kind of love and forgiveness. In the midst of grief, unspeakable, one by one, turning to express not hatred, but love and forgiveness. And so the question I want to think about this morning, church, is where does that kind of love and forgiveness come from? You know, I had a sense as I was preparing uh, this message uh, just in the last couple of days that I think the sum of this uh, here this morning, this is a pressing issue. I believe there's maybe one or two people here that you're wrestling with forgiveness. Maybe a great wrong has been committed against you. And I believe the Lord wants to stir us up as we ponder where can we find this kind of radical forgiveness. You know, increasingly we live in a society that does not believe in forgiveness, but eternal penance. Unforgivable is now a commonly used word with broad application for things like failures in child protection, for things like in the ABC just this week, neglecting rural health, for things like environmental mismanagement. Famously, Joe Biden, after the attack at Kabul Airport last year, said to the perpetrators of the crime, We will never forget. And we will never forgive. Greta Thunberg, the famous young activist, is famous for describing those of my generation and before who have destroyed the environment as, as those we will never ever forgive. I closed the home throughout the papers for weeks on end. I consider Scott Morrison, regardless of what you think, you would think that this man has destroyed our entire nation, such as the constant and vitriol. The truth is it's often only when you personally need forgiveness 
that you can begin to see its merit. And so I return to the question I ask myself, where can we find that kind of radical forgiveness we see displayed in the Emmanuel Church? I believe the answer is that kind of forgiveness is so beautifully see displayed in the church. It's made possible only by what Christ achieved at the cross. Now, culture, we need to hear this message of forgiveness. We need a re-familiarizing with grace. The achievement of the cross is so beautiful because it's both forgiveness purchased and forgiveness displayed so remarkably by Jesus on the cross. So the message today, I want us to draw near to that same cross and allow some of its sparks to fall upon us and rekindle our heart for the Lord Jesus. You know, if you're taking notes this morning, I've entitled this message, I borrowed, I borrowed it from Philip Ryken, the title, it's such a good title, I couldn't improve on it, Life at the End of the Cross. And I have three points this morning from the passage we've been looking at. But really this message is a message that is about just one thing I've already described, and that is that we've drawn near to the cross and allow some of the sparks of us. It's simply a reminder to abide close to for the cross. So let's dive into unpack our passage this morning. Point number one, darkness descends. If you knew this series, as I've mentioned, we've been parked out here at the foot of the cross for a few weeks now. And we've been blessed to spend uh, a few weeks just surveying the cross and allowing some of those sparks to fall upon us. We've seen the injustice brought upon Jesus and his betrayal and trial by people who found innocent and yet uh, beaten and mocked and, and scorned, spat upon, scourged, dressed up, ridiculed. And we see Jesus weakened, as we heard uh, read earlier today, so well by Evie, uh, as he marches towards the cross, with Simon of Cyrene carrying the cross behind Jesus as he walks his crucifixion. And as he walks, he is continually mocked, all by all, even other criminals, as he hangs from the cross. Except for one criminal who repents and puts their faith in Jesus and so beautifully received by him. And there we pick up our passage for this morning. Why don't you read with me again from verse 44. Our passage says this. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. The sixth hour in ancient thinking uh, was the sixth hour from 6 a.m., so it was 12 a.m. midday until 3 p.m. in the afternoon. This was a supernatural event. This was not a solar eclipse, as sometimes people propose simply because the solar eclipse is always during a new moon, whereas the Passover is always a full moon. So it's not possible that a solar eclipse could occur during Passover. No, this is a supernatural event. More than that, this is a supernatural sign. It's a miraculous sign pointing to a hidden reality, which begs the obvious question. Why did God cause the sky to darken? What does this darkness symbolize? 
And I put to you that it symbolizes two different things. The first is that the darkness was a symbol of bitter lament. And Amos is a book towards the end of the Old Testament, a short book. And Amos in this book speaks of God's judgment in the coming day of the Lord. Uh, it's a book with a warning because this judgment isn't just going to be against people out there, but it's going to be judgment upon God's people, his own people as well. And we read this beautiful, powerful passage, striking passage in Amos chapter 8, verse 9. And it says, And on that day, that's the day of the Lord, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon, and darken the earth in broad day. I will turn your feasts into mourning, and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every place, and baldness on every head. Listen to this. I will make, make it like the morning for an only son. Like the morning for an only son and the end of a big day. It speaks so clearly about this moment, doesn't it? Something so striking. The sun going down in the middle of the day. Like morning for an only son. You know, it reminded me of the only moment I have witnessed someone mourning for an only son. I was in high school, early high school, and a friend of mine, Andrew Jefferson, had been in school cross country. And during the school cross country, he had collapsed and died of a heart attack. And I remember being at his funeral and looking at his mum's face, dressed in black. Tears just streaming down her face, mourning the loss of her son. Picture the Lord Jesus hanging upon the cross in the middle of the day. Spring sun, not too dissimilar from this day, suddenly changes as darkness comes over the land. The light dims, and for three hours, darkness descends. People need to light torches to be able to see. The point? God is not unmoved. He mourns that he's only son. So easy to forget the grief of the Father in this moment. This is the hour of the power of darkness. And though as he hangs upon the cross, his divinity is concealed. He looks like just a man hanging on the cross. But God displays his grief in the darkness. I think that's the first thing this picture displays. But not just that displays the grief and the man of God, but secondly, the darkness was a symbol of judgment. Darkness is perhaps the most famous as a symbol of divine judgment in the Old Testament. Think of the ninth plague uh, during the Exodus from Egypt. Moses stretches out his hand in which darkness falls upon the land for three days. It's a symbol of God's opposition to Pharaoh. It's a forewarning of his final plague. 
for Amos again in calling uh, for the day of the Lord, not realizing it will be against them as well, says the following in Amos chapter 5. He says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand upon the wall and served him, bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Is it not gloom with no brightness in it? See, according to Amos, the day of the Lord is not something you will want to see. It's like seeking refuge from final judgment and instead finding ruin. Notice he mentions darkness twice. It's a symbol of God's judgment. Zephaniah, in Zephaniah chapter 1, talks about this day of the Lord in the following way. Zephaniah says, The great day of the Lord is near, near and fast, hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. In many ways, Jesus' crucifixion appeared like every other crucifixion of his day. Horribly brutal, tortured, mocked, beaten, hung, suffering. And yet revealing the hidden, miraculous, darkening of the sky, God was displaying a hidden reality. Revealing his bitter judgment in the darkened sky. Bitter judgment on the day of the Lord. See, the darkness revealed the hidden reality that Jesus was bearing God's judgment on the cross. And Paul puts it so well in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says this, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become righteousness of God. Jesus Christ knew no sin. He was sinless. He was completely perfect. He was perfect in his love for God. Perfect in his love for others. Perfect in his word, his thought, his deed. I mean, imagine one day, just one day living perfectly. Imagine what that would be like. To perfectly trust in God. To be perfectly devoted to him and devoted to others just for one day. It's so impossible, isn't it? I mean, like my prayers quickly turn back to myself. I can't, I can't even maintain it for too long. But Jesus was perfect. And he made him to be sin. That is to be regarded as, to be treated as sin. To receive the right penalty for our sins. Because it was for our sake. For our sake. Jesus made it possible to forgive, for God to forgive us and to be just, to be fair. He bore our pain. And so in the darkness, God displays the hidden judgment of God upon Jesus on the cross. So God did not wish that the truth that Jesus was embracing God's wrath for our sins would remain hidden from you, but he displayed what was hidden in the darkness sky. And that's point number one, the darkness descends. Not just point number one, the darkness descends. Point number two, heaven torn open. See, Luke wants us to see more than simply what was occurring at the cross, but also what was achieved by the cross as well. Read with me from verse 45 again, that passage. 
this. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus, in John's account, cries out, It is finished. He had completed the work of atonement. He had endured the wrath of God upon the cross. And following this, in our passage, Luke writes that Jesus said, Into your hands I commit where I entrust my spirit. It's actually a quote from Psalm 31. David, the great king in this psalm, is in great affliction, but expresses his confidence in God. Psalm 31, verse 7, he says, I rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love, because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul. And the psalm ends in verse 24 with David crying, Be strong and let your hearts take courage, all of you who wait for the Lord. See, Jesus died confident in God. He's laying down his life in this passage. He is confident in the Father's love. He has drained the cup of wrath and he entrusts his spirit back into his hand. And so Jesus dies. The divine Son, the God-man, gives up his spirit into the Father's hand and breathes his last. It's a beautiful picture of the Son of God still in perfect full control. In John chapter 10, verse 17, Jesus says this, speaking of this day, he says, For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to, to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. Well, this all might be true, that Jesus has borne the sins of his people upon the cross is completed, the work of atonement. But what about this curtain turning into? Is it a case of just dodgy material? What does it mean? It has such beautiful, deep significance. But to understand that we really need to go back to the story of the gospel from the garden all the way to the cross. See, the truth is, for all of us, we have a great purpose that's been given to us in life. You know, whether you're here this morning and you're trusting in Jesus or not, all of us feel like there's something wrong with the world. It's not the way it should be. And the reason we feel that is because we have a purpose. We have a purpose and meaning that's been given to us by God. See, the Trinity God is a Father who loves His Son through the Holy Spirit. He's a loving relationship. And He makes us know Him and love Him forever. And in the very beginning, the Bible teaches that God made them our ancestors and he placed them in a garden called Eden. And interestingly, in the Greek Bible, the, the word for the garden of Eden is the same word that Jesus uses for the thief upon the cross that's translated paradise. Eden. But the truth is that the man and woman rejected God. They sinned against God. And they were kicked out of the garden. And God in response sets two cherubim to guard the entrance to the garden. A kind of keep out sign from God. A picture of their broken relationship with Him. And this is the powerful effect of our sins. It makes us His enemies with God. It damages our relationship with Him. 
It makes our hearts resistant to change, harder like stone. And we don't desire Him at all. We feel this deeply. We know that we are not the people that we should be. We have not been the parents that we should be. We have not been the kids that we should be. We have not been the colleagues that we should be. God in His mercy didn't abandon us in our pride. The beautiful news of the Bible is He called an elderly man called Abraham and promised to make him into a great nation. A one that forward and God rescues His people from Egypt and promised to dwell in their midst to, to, for them to be His people, for Him to be present with them. And, and to do that, He instructs Moses to build this tent where they can symbolically pay for their sins so that God can dwell amongst them as His people. And at the center of this tent, God designates what's called the holiest place, the holiest of holies, right at the center, where God would beautifully manifest His presence. And it had a curtain that stood between it and priests inside the tent. And no one could enter into that place except the high priest once a year. And this curtain symbolically had cherubim, two cherubim woven into its material. A reminder of a heat out sign way back from the garden. And that tent was eventually made into a temple by King Solomon. And you read the following in 2 Chronicles verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 14, where it says, And he Solomon, Solomon made a veil of blue and purple crimson fabrics and fine linen, and he worked cherubim on it. And this temple was knocked down and rebuilt a couple of times until our day where Herod's temple uh, was huge with a massive curtain standing before the Holy of Holies, the holiest place. 18 meters high by 9 meters across. A single piece of fabric. Six by three stories. A single curtain with multiple layers. And it was a curtain with cherubim upon it. A keep out sign. As the famous kids book goes, because of your sin, you can't come in. And as a Gentile, which is Nearly all of us here, we couldn't even go into the courts of this temple, let alone into its holiest place. And so we read in verse 45, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Matthew writes in his gospel, from top to bottom, and there was accompanied by an earthquake and rocks split. Top down. If you think about the kind of ladder you would need to be able to rip it from the top all the way down, 18 meters high. The point is, it, it's impossible. God has done it. And the meaning? Jesus has opened up the way back to paradise. The kick out sign has been removed from God's presence. I just want us to pause just for a moment and think about this. I just want to pause and just address for a moment all the Christians in the room. If you're trusting in Jesus, do you realize this is true of you? You may be going through some trial. Maybe it's a health trial or disappointment with a spouse or maybe finances or unfairly being unfairly treated at work or loneliness. Maybe being bullied at school. Maybe you're at war with your kids. The curtains talk. Through Jesus, you can come and freely approach the one who endured the greatest trial of all. Maybe you're struggling with apathy. 
Maybe there's kind of like a lack of desire in your heart for Christ. You've not been reading or praying. You've not been at church. Friends, the curtain is torn in two. You can come and freely approach the one who's filled with love such that he poured himself out for us. Maybe you're lacking in wisdom or direction. Should you get married? Should you buy that house? Should you take that job? Should you move to that place? The one who has the wisdom of ages invites you in. The curtain is torn in two. You can freely approach. Maybe you're struggling with bitterness. Maybe you've been sinned against. Maybe you've been mistreated. Maybe someone started a malicious rumor about you or gossip. Or the one who has forgiven you and freely forgives invites you in. The curtain has been torn to. I was just to pause and just even remember this moment. I mean, just look around you for a moment. It's such a familiar building, a familiar place, a familiar people, and it's so familiar we can miss the majesty of this moment. The curtain is torn in two. He is present here. We can come before his throne. But maybe here this morning and you're not trusting him. I just want to pause and briefly address you as Do you realize this is available to you? If you feel that sense that things are not right in the world, maybe it is because you have a purpose and means of life. And that purpose and means is Jesus. You don't need to bear your failings, you need to come to Him. The curtain is torn to Heaven is torn open. That's point Jesus endured the wrath of God for our sin so we can freely approach the plan of grace by faith. But not just that, not just point number two, the curtain is torn. Final point, point number three, the sun begins to dawn. You know, one of the saving graces of running in winter, which is horrible, it's cold, it's dark, is arriving at Golden Jubilee over to see the sunrise. The beautiful red sky of the first light dawn of a new day. And in a simpler sense, in this passage today, we see the first life of a new day dawn as well. It's immediately after Jesus has died, and we begin to see the first fruits of his victory emerge in three different responses to the cross. It's almost like an invitation that Luke is inviting us to consider. How do we respond to Jesus? The first we see is the crowds who are sorrowful. We read the following in verse 48 of the passage. It says this. And all the crowds that assembled for the spectacle when they saw what had taken place returned home beating their breasts. And beating their breasts, it's it's a symbol of a Hebrew expression for mourning. Uh, This was the crowd that had demanded Jesus' crucifixion. It's likely that many had held insults to Jesus during his trial, even as he was being crucified. Our passage is they leave the spectacle. And yet they leave in sorrow. Beating their breasts, mourning, no longer a jubilation at the plight of Jesus, they can see a great wrong has taken place. It's not repentance, there's no signs of genuine faith in Christ, because they couldn't have imagined what was to come, but there are signs of the softness of it. The second thing we see in this picture is the disciples who are confused. Read the following in verse 41. It says that all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. It's noticeable in our account there's no mention of the twelve disciples. 
According to John, they were afraid and they were locked inside as Jesus appeared. In John's Gospel, it was only John who had been present with Mary and Jesus' mother at some point. There was no mention of any other disciples. In Luke chapter 24, we learned that the disciples believed Jesus wasn't the Messiah after They say we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel, meaning he wasn't. It, it's just simply these women and other disciples who have been Jesus' companions who likely formed the eyewitness account of Luke's account of the cross. And there's just a hint of faith, isn't there? At a distance and with others, they watch on what unfolds. Fearful, but watching from a distance. And finally, there's the centurion who declares faith. Read with me verse 47. It says this. It's so good. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. The centurion was in charge of a hundred soldiers, and why had seen many executions? But not like this. It says in Mark that he had declared, This was the Son of God. Luke says the same from a different perspective. He was innocent, i.e. what he said was true. What had the centurion seen that convinced him? Is the question I must have been thinking about. We're not told what exactly changed the centurion's perspective, but we do know what he saw and heard at the foot of the cross. He saw Jesus love towards his enemies, forgiving them as they killed him and defiled him. He saw Jesus embrace the other thief. He saw the darkness, the earthquake, and the rocks splitting. He saw Jesus' prayer of surrender, and he saw Jesus give up his life. And all that the centuries saw let it declare, this is the Son of God. That leads me to the second question that I've been thinking on this week, which is why did the centurion respond this way while the disciples trembled in fear? Why would it take them so many more days and weeks to see what this centurion could see right here? And from a divine perspective, we know the answer, right? God's sovereign grace opened his eyes and he could see. But humanly speaking, it was simply his proximity to the cross. Standing at the foot of the cross, what he saw opened his eyes. You know, John Scott has famously said, the cross is the blazing fire in which the flame of our love is kindled. But we have to get closer to it, for it starts with all things. You see, at the foot of the cross, we can see the heart of Jesus so much more clearly. The love for God he displays that the depth of love that led him to stay and trust. We see his love for others and his tender care for those around him, forgiving them. And so as we close, I just want to pause and consider one simple question. How are you going in your affection for the Lord Jesus? You know, like the centurion, maybe you're filled with faith. You've been abiding close to through the cross. And you're filled with faith in the Lord Jesus. You know, in our gospel community just a few weeks ago, there was such a powerful night where multiple people were sharing and reading passages about the cross and just crying. 
such is their love for Christ. And I know we're at church, but many folks in our church are like this, filled with a deep love and affection for Christ. But maybe you're like the crowd. You have sympathy for Jesus, but you're not trusting in Jesus. This is an invitation to you to come to the cross and trust in Him. But I say for many of us, the truth is we're just praying for Like the disciples, finding ourselves at this time of year with lots of fun in our standing at a distance, watching them. It's an encouragement, just the same. Come, friend, come to the fourth of the cross. The best place to cultivate the heart of Christ is to spend time time so make some time to read slowly, perhaps, through the Passion accounts this Christmas in the Gospels. Maybe find some time to research and find a good book on the cross that you can meditate on and, and think on, like The Truth of the Cross by R.C. Sproul, Living the Cross in the Life by C.J. Mahaney, or The Heart of the Cross by, by Philip Reichen and James Montgomery and Doc Boyce. Maybe you could start a new routine to begin and end each day by thanking Jesus for the cross and preaching the truth of the gospel to yourself every day that you are right with God, not based on what you've done that day. Or maybe you could simply begin by confessing the hardness of heart and inviting him to change you to be like You know, friends, there's something so inspiring about the forgiveness that we've seen extended by Emmanuel Church towards the moon, so powerful, so inspiring that hatred, such hatred, could be turned into a radical display of peace and love. That same depth of love, friends, is available to us this very moment. You're struggling here with forgiveness against someone else. We have a wonderful resource of love through the Lord Jesus and the curtain of 22. Where can we find it? We can find it at the fourth of the cross. Would you join me in the prayers for you? Well, Jesus, we want to thank you so much for the amazing gift of pausing and sitting out of this moment. How can we understand, Lord Jesus, what it costs you to humble yourself and die for? How do we understand what you were enduring in and through the dark inside? How can we understand how Father mourned for you as you hung there and received his world? Well, Jesus, as your people in the lead up to Christmas, ask and pray as well. Help us. Help us to be a people that never, ever Help us to live there, right there at the foot of the cross. Allow those sparks to come and fly upon us. Help us to find regular, vague moments and just pause and simply thank you. Thank you for all you did for us as you hung there.
the last three weeks have been slowed down and 